Brick Moon Fiction presents Water That Runs Red by Brian Aiello Narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle Staring out the office's red dust-covered window, she considers his proposition. The street, seven stories below, would make an easy solution, too. Either way, it's simple. Survive or don't. Could she? No, because her daughter depends on her. She finds herself wishing old wishes that she drowns out in her head by studying the weather. It's summer and the sun is always up unless concealed by one of the many sandstorms that come down from the volcano. Red walls of death if caught in one. Soon she will be out there again, away from this heating system that keeps the deadly cold at bay. Streaks of condensation run down the windows tinged with the always present layer of red dust. She breathes free, humid air, probably close to 50 years old, if anything. It tastes stale, but even stale air is a luxury she is soon going to be without. Air is more expensive than gold. The new stuff is always saved for management. The oldest is in the mines and still outside her budget of zero. Galactic Corporation controls everything, down to the credits they gave out as pay, each penny going back into its own coffers. Dust is everywhere because it's Mars. Down below is the city of Mon Olympus, sitting in the shadow of her namesake, the second tallest mountain system in the Sol system. A million people and climbing call her home. A red fugue billows in the streets, making everything look slow and lumbering. Movers of all types run between their painted lines and vibrate the ground as they pass and kick up enough dust to compete with the season. People bundle in clingy man-made fibers to keep the Martian atmosphere off their skin and scurry about on their business. She is jealous because once she leaves here, she has nowhere to go. All of her belongings, either in the single suitcase sitting under her daughter that she scrambled to pack, knowing she was escaping hell in the corner office, or on the street outside the building the three of them shared a room in on Goddard and Collins, likely tossed there courtesy of the mining housing authority to be scavenged by other families or picked up by the rubbish service. Hey, also, don't forget it's dust storm season, and if a person were looking for an excuse to leave, now's as good a time as any. She flinches. His voice, the sound halitosis would make, pulls her from a fantasy where she gets to live in the pyramid-shaped luxury condo building in the center of town. The first thing people see when they get to Mars is ironically most likely the last place any of them will ever end up. Within a year of arriving... 10% of everyone who steps foot onto Martian soil ends up in the smoke-spewing cremation building. She wonders if Bob already got processed, if maybe she was looking at the warm body she knew so well changed to soot, even now. Mars isn't what one would consider a vacation spot, but in the winter when the permafrost refreezes, the skiing is excellent. Mons Olympus boasts the only boron run in the whole system, 50,000 meters almost straight down, with most of the danger mitigated by the lower Martian gravity. Most. The man draws her attention back again. The moment, Cheryl Ann, you sign this contract, the money starts flowing, he says, tapping the line she is meant to sign. And I can bring my daughter? She looks down into her lap as if her little girl were still there and not six feet behind her. She had to bring her to this, this what she had hoped was a legitimate offer. If she turns... The little girl's dark eyes beg her to do the impossible. Feed her, clothe her, keep her alive. 
In response, he does a thing with his head that could be considered a nod and shake combined, and she grimaces, knowing he's lying. He has yet to meet her eyes, though, finding everything below her chin more appealing. Everyone knows people like him exist, those that grease the wheels of the black market, finding product, meeting demands, the traffic cop on the illicit crossroads between customers and business. He even looks the part, a bit rat-like, twitchy like he expects to get caught, but she still wants to consider the offer like it's legit. The amount, staggering. 10K every day, just to keep her and Barbie alive. The day rate on Mars was 1,000. Air, food, lodging, and bric-a-brac to spend credits on. But she knows there's going to be more. Nothing is free, not even getting off Mars. The rat fingers the mouse, bringing alive the monitor in front of him. It's either yes or no. Terran 5 isn't hurting for pioneers, and I have work to do. Yes, Terran 5 is. She wants to argue, but doesn't. It's a new colony. It markets itself as an anything-goes community. Come dig gold out of the dirt and have gratuitous sex. Her stomach churns at the thought. But she and her daughter are going to be hurting. No, they are going to be dead. What else can she do? Go to the saints? And where the saints get the ability to help is anyone's guess. The whole colony is food and air hungry, and anything not in the white galactic cartons is too polluted to drink. She knows something's wrong with her stomach. Can she tell him this? Would it make a difference? Would he take sympathy on her and the little girl with rotten water in her belly? Get the job on a new planet. Start over. Nothing else matters. The offer doesn't change with the number of pioneers. She feels tears flood her eyes. No, that would add too much insult to this. Fuck it, she says, deciding she'll do it. For Barbie. She takes her child's hand. Baby, Mommy needs you to wait in the hall. No, it's fine, he interrupts, loosening his greasy polyester tie and the yellow-ringed collar beneath it from his neck. She can stay. Instead, she stands in the lobby, just on the inside of the pressurized doors. Tears of rage sting her eyes. She would love to push through those doors and forget about Terran 5 and Galactic forever. But the contents of her oxygen bottle betray her. They need oxygen even if they were just going to the saints across town, and with no credits, it's more walking and breathing than she can afford. She taps the gauge on her oxygen bottle, yet the blinking red light haunts her with the scant minutes she has left. The race to get here depleting almost everything. Barbie's the same. God damn them, she whispers. Mommy, I'm hungry. She looks down and her first thought makes her cringe, but instead of yelling at Barbie to shush, she says, Of course you are. Here. And she fishes in the huge cargo pocket on her right thigh and finds a protein bar. She opens the cellophane, aware it's their last, and breaks it in half. She hands it to her daughter before pocketing the remaining portion for later. That's the bitch about hunger. It always returns. After the last portion of the dense calorie-rich bar, she'll have the perfect trifecta. No food, water, or oxygen. At least the latter will end all her problems the quickest. Spying a solution, she decides not to walk out onto Mon Street Sands' oxygen mask. Across the way is one of the huge earth movers, 2,300 horsepower and capable of pulling 79 tons of dirt and rocks in search of the precious stuff needed so badly by earth corporations. 
but most important to her is the oxygen scrubber strapped to its side with metal bands. She knows how the whole thing works because it was her job to maintain Galactic's equipment before she started working with Bob and his friends. Even from where she is standing, she can see the gauge is near 100%. They won't even miss it, she promises herself. Flipping her wrist over, she reads the time as near 9 p.m. At the new hour, a new shift will start. Those getting off will hotbed with those coming on. There's lots of confusion before this mover moves on towards its assigned sector or back to the hangar. It's always the case. These aren't soldiers. They are laborers. Always short, also struggling. She doesn't recognize the unit designation on the front bumper, a gold zero, but decides the language written on the crew port might be Chinese. The bumper is bedecked with wings. She bends down and checks Barbie's outer wrap. They both wear the issued galactic parka. Hers used to be owned by Bob and dwarfs the four-year-old, so she had to tie it up to protect her daughter's skin from the pressure outside. Exposure scars for life. She knows what she is about to do could get her shot on sight and orphan her daughter. Theft, or really any crime against the corporation, means death because distractions cost money and money is all important. In the event of a crime, the first thing Galactic does is cut them off from the system. If the criminal survives that, they go through the faux court procedure on a space station above Brazil. It's really a formality because once there, next stop, hell, the prison colony rumored to be orbiting Venus. Going to hell is worth protecting Barbie, she decides, living as a family, death sentence though it may be when they find them and transport them or do worse. Will Barbie go to hell also? There are no rules here, just profit. She knows this as her eyes find the black smear of human bodies polluting the thin atmosphere spit from the crematory. God damn you, Bob. Why couldn't you have been one of the ninety, she thinks, pushing into the anteroom and dragging Barbie in behind her before closing the lab's inner door. As the anteroom depressurizes, she thinks of her partner, never husband, because that required paperwork and the proper religion. Bob wasn't a fan of either. He was a tall man with a penchant for yelling and banging on things for emphasis. People made way for him, paid him respect. He believed thinking about a god made death a reality, so he preferred to never do so. But still, Galactic had him at their whim, as they do everyone. And to make life work, most people colored outside the lines. They remained unofficial because marriage would have made them ineligible for work on Mars. They handheld, and she was okay with that. Anything else would get them sent home. And home would be a camp somewhere while social service found them a place. Better to lie and stay away from all that if she can. But then they had Barbie. Such hubris that they could have her and live like this, feasting until they suddenly weren't. They thought they could do it, live the dream and still work the Martian chaos. Bob was doing a no-show shift, show up and sit for eight hours and make some money. It's part of it all, doing favors, being the guy that can shake free a few hundred credits from tubing that fell off the back of the truck, whatever. With a million people and little oversight, scrapping the cracks for change was profitable. But an imploding mind doesn't care about cracks or no-shows, and Galactic didn't give one shit either when they found evidence of multiple rule infractions, which was enough for warrants to be issued and for the system to shut her out. The light blinks green on the lab's outer door. She pushes through and into the Martian atmosphere. 
The moisture hisses on the surface of her parka as it evaporates like a freshly poured soda, and the cold bites her lungs even through the insulated oxygen mask covering her face. The mover is a dozen feet away, blocking the street. The rumbling warmth of the mover's fusion engine feels amazing as she approaches. The crew must be inside, maybe prepping for their day and hopefully not studying the security camera she knows is trained on the O-tank. She beelines there, irregardless that they can shoot them both on spot. Mover crews were not known for discretion, most having been dug out of the worst refuge Earth had to offer. Camp rejects. Men just short of hell. She releases Barbie's hand and the little girl steps onto the first rung that leads up to the mover's airlock and huddles close to the huge machine for additional warmth. It takes a little less than a minute to fill her air canister. Tapping the gauge again to make sure it really holds 100% its capabilities, she swaps it for her daughter's nearly empty one. She smiles at Barbie, and through layers of scarves and a respirator, she feels her daughter smile back. Feeling exposed, she drops back down to fill her own bottle. Can she pull it off twice? Barbie's empty canister feels light in her gloved hand, and just as she is about to twist it into the tank, her suit's systems reminds her that she needs oxygen, stat, with a shrill alarm that scares her enough to pee a little. She fumbles the canister. It falls from her gloved hands and rolls toward the rear of the mover, tinkling like cheap tin. She sprints to catch it before it bounces off the giant tire and goes into traffic. Rounding the huge machine, however, she physically bounces off a security specialist just bending over to pick it up. Where did he come from? Her blue galactic security suit looks almost brand new, and Cheryl Ann knows she landed in a big steaming pile of the end. They make eye contact, her oxygen alarm blaring, reminding her soon she will lose consciousness. Will she wake up in hell? No, because she is already there now. Then the mover starts its journey. The air jumps in waves as the engines begin the task of spinning the giant wheels. Instinct alone makes her turn, but slip on the fine grit covering the roadway. She tries to reach her daughter, but is forced to only watch. She screams out, Barbie, jump! But Barbie doesn't jump. Quickly, the dust kicked up by the mover conceals its progress as it speeds towards the Monolympus city borders and beyond the crags and corridors that are the volcano. What would happen to her baby then? If the mover gets up to its full speed of over 300 kph, she is dead. There's nothing that can be done. If they find her before they reach the desert, then what? She cringes as she pictures a crew of mud-covered miners discovering her little girl. She'll know cruelty. She'll know worse. Cheryl Ann regains her balance, but before she can really do anything of benefit, a sudden force shoves her face-first into the asphalt as the prongs of a stun gun bruise her ribs. Then a current of electricity removes her from any conscious thought of her daughter, of surviving, like a tease for the death soon to come. She wakes, not dead, and very much disappointed, but scared for her little girl. She knows quitting just isn't an option. The shadows of the tall halves slip by as the security specialist makes her way through traffic, clipping in and out of the slower-moving mining vehicles. Cheryl Ann quickly finds her wrists are wrapped in cuffs as the doom of it all washes over her. Her daughter has four hours of air. That much she knows. That much she was able to provide her. Beyond that, what? Standing on the stairs of an earth mover on its way out to a Chinese mine. Can she hang on?
She moans, and the cop glares back at her from the cab. The cop moans back at her, mocking with a smirk. And Cheryl Ann wants to kill her. She got to Mars as a mechanic. Fusion engines. But things being what they are, she worked on everything, including galactic security buggies. Then she met Bob and didn't work on anything other than what to do with all the credits he kept finding laying around Mons. The security pod is a three-wheeled glass dome thing famous for being off-balance. It's horrible design, a byproduct of kickback deals gone wrong with eight different companies. A complete failure in terms of Martian physics. And that's good for Cheryl Ann. Especially being the driver is willing to interact. She adjusts herself on the back bench and with a fiery pain dislocates her left elbow, forcing the joint from its socket, working an injury that occurred during a similar event back on Earth. Still cuffed and in near agony, she looks into the rearview mirror and stares into the set of intense blue eyes staring back. She knows this is going to get messy, so works the truth. Please, my daughter is on that mover. As expected, the specialist takes the hard line. Having a kid on Mars is illegal without permission. You have permission? No, but accidents happen, right? The cop looks back just as they reach an intersection. Siren blaring, she is going at a good clip and distracted by a moralizing lecture, so Cheryl Ann decides it's time. You're a resource thief. Resource theft is dangerous for colony survival and unauthorized fraternizing weakens morale. I arrested you for attempted evasion of law enforcement, corporate property manipulation, and theft. You've been a busy girl, the GS says, smirk returning. Corporate's been after you all day. Mr. Patel has an award coming. Fuck him, she thinks, hating that greasy pervert's face as it pops into her mind. How much worse for Barbie would it have been if she had just taken the offer? She might be free and on her way to a new world, new job, and a complete do-over. But more likely, Barbie would be ruined forever, and she would still be going to hell in the back of this security pod. The security pods are light, thin aluminum body with two plexiglass domes. She is encased in the rear bubble, which is thicker than the front and sits unsecured on a hard black plastic bench. The pod runs on tiny wheels because all streets in Mons are smoothly paved. The cart could transport six secured prisoners. She hears no engine or city noise and knows this means it runs on the city's chi grid. The chi, or key, is the resonant inductive coupling system that powers Mons traffic, meaning all she needs is a giant shock, and she can send the cruiser soaring. Just as the cart passes the lee of a giant hab, a rush of wind hits it hard enough for the specialist to declare, Oh shit! and pull focus from the mirror back to the road. But too late, as Cheryl Ann screams directly in the security specialist's ear and jumps up violently so she can slam herself back down on her seat. Then, physics takes over. The cart bounces and hits the ground with a loud bang of metal on metal resulting in the induction plating releasing a giant spark with more voltage than five massive lightning strikes. The pod soars, airborne. When it hits the ground, Cheryl Ann thinks her back is broken. Then it rolls over and over until slamming into a taxi that couldn't stop in time, and she is sure it is. The security specialist, though, is launched free through the pod's front canopy and crushed under the first roll twenty meters back. A worthless canopy covers Cheryl Ann, The pressure begins to boil the moisture from her exposed skin. 
Instantly, it feels like the worst sunburn and only getting worse. Despite other injuries, she flips her legs through her cuffed arms, forces her joint back into place, and wraps her face airtight with her scarf as fast as she can to stop the agony of the atmosphere burn. In her memory, she sees the security specialist 20 meters behind, moves to supply herself with her air canister and mask before she dies, forced to use only memory and hopeful that she avoids getting hit by one of the cars zipping by, she goes, fumbling for hope. Though she feels her eyelids peeling back, mummifying with exposure, she keeps them closed as best she can and moves. Maybe it's luck, maybe something else, but she trips over her victim and manages to get herself right and sucking oxygen again. She can taste the specialist's last breath as she sits on the ground, deciding what to do next. The cart might work, she decides, standing and moving to it. She pushes it over and climbs into the driver's seat and hits the ignition. It fucking turns on. Coughing what tastes like blood, she chooses and floors the accelerator, noting only the volcano as a beacon and a sense that out there was her little girl. For Cheryl Ann, nothing else matters but getting her back, not the sting of sub-freezing Martian air ruining her body nor the futility of her actions, because to survive, she knows Barbie needs a mother's love. Twenty years later, a mover leaves a lava tube and goes airborne for a dozen meters before slamming back down. Inside, a high-pitched voice screams, Jesus, fuck me! And Barbie laughs, loving that she gets to spend the next four days with her best friend while delivering ore to Galactic. I don't think Jesus would fuck you talking like that. Probably better for us both, the obese boy, whose genealogy puts his family on the west coast of Africa at some point long ago, replies. She can't help but think about it, though, and is blessedly relieved from the images of a crown of thorns wearing King of Kings giving it to the little round black boy. When the comm signal signals an incoming call, she taps the icon and her screen fills with the chocolate, smiling eyes of Mother. Bit fast out of the grotto there, my little sticker. She opens her mouth to argue, but Dante jumps in. I saw her get it up to 200 kph. Tattletale, she mouths at her friend. Mother never looks unhappy, but Barbie can sense something is off. I'm not calling to admonish. I am sending you coordinates. Go there after the drop-off. We found something there that belongs to you. Barb's mind spins. She came to the Saints with nothing except the galactic parka that she wears still today. It's patched and religiously maintained and obviously many decades old, but the name Gonzalez can still be read stitched onto the left breast, and the training bolos on the right shoulder still declare the owner as a skilled mechanic. So she worked hard to make the jacket true, and today she is Barbie Gonzalez, youngest first master mechanic of the Saints. What is it? The corpse is black from exposure. Long hair colored red with Martian dust teeth bared orange in a mouth cured to last the ages. The face holds a desperation. Being exposed to Mars is a painful death, but this look is not pain. It's a look of determination etched in stone like maybe even in death. She might still be seeking that which she sought. Barbie shivers. I drove this person to kill herself. Suicide is a bit disingenuous, though. Maybe sacrifice would be better, Dante answers back voice muffled by his mask. He takes her elbow. Look, he says, pointing. She's wearing a galactic jacket just like yours. And she was. Though Barbie's jacket was cut for a man's figure, 
this shredded garment looked more feminine. Instead of Gonzales, Smith bedecked the breast, almost faded to nothing. What do you want to do? And Barbie does not say what she wants to do. Go to her. Feel what she has been missing all these years. A warm sense of perfect love, whether true or not. Instead, she says, Honor her. And unsure of what that even means, eyes a large rock. She goes to it and picks it up and carries it back to the security pod. She lays the rock down next to it, already searching the ground for another to add to the cairn she decides needs building around her mom. She deserves a monument, one that will last forever, always there, to remind me. Galactic must pay. Brian Aiello hosts weekly podcasts on creativity and speculative fiction and is a writer of fantasy, sci-fi, and the macabre. Raised on Florida's Gulf Coast, Brian served in the Army, graduated from the University of South Florida, and now calls Brooklyn home. For more of his fiction and links to his podcasts, visit www.brianiello.com and follow him on Twitter, at Bri Aiello. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.